Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello there, and welcome to the Open Our Bibles Together podcast. I am so happy you're here and joining me today as we once again continue our studies in the book of Genesis. But can we just pause to take a moment to celebrate the big 4 Well, OOBT's 40th episode anyway. <laughs> I am super excited and humbled to still be studying alongside each one of you now 40 episodes later. So, so good. Okay, enough of that. How about we set down our confetti to now return our attention to Joseph? However, before we begin in our reading from Genesis chapter 46, I want to camp for a bit in some interesting perspectives in our lives that we can find from reading the entirety of Joseph's story from start to finish. Over the last couple months, I have been trying to keep up with a book club style reading of Jenny Allen's book, Restless. During the same time, she has featured many episodes on her Made for More podcast related to each week's reading. And confession time here, I still have not finished reading all the book nor listened to all the podcast episodes, but what I have discovered is that there are some valuable and even very thought-provoking ideas found in this one, ways to relate God's story, Joseph's story, and even our own stories together. Well, how about I just let Jenny tell us more by reading some excerpts found throughout her book, and yes, I promise that all the links will be in today's show notes. (laughs) Okay, so are you ready to dive in with me? This might be just another one of those hard good moments, but so worth our time. Jenny begins. For the last several months, a room full of women in Austin, Texas, have been working through this material together to identify the threads that make up their purposes. We've dug into the life of Joseph and Genesis. As you know, for a lot of us, this study fell in the midst of watching our best friend Sarah nearly die. But she made it, and now she is to begin the journey of relearning to walk and talk. So we approach scripture and big questions about God's purposes with a lot of tears. Joseph has become a bit of a fellow sojourner beside us through these dark seasons. From an early age, Joseph had dreams and revelations from God. He specifically dreamed that his brothers and parents would all bow down to him one day. Joseph's ten older brothers hated him for this, and they sold him into slavery, allowing their father to believe he was killed. Joseph lived dark years as a slave in the house of Potiphar, but he served diligently. Nevertheless. Potiphar's wife lied and accused him of rape. He was imprisoned for more than a decade. Joseph spent more than 20 years either enslaved or in prison in Egypt. But the dream Joseph dreamed as a child would come to fruition. He used his gift of dream interpretation and went on to help Pharaoh lead Egypt out of a great famine. He was given tremendous authority, second only to Pharaoh himself. What his brothers and others had meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. There is so much we can draw from Joseph's story. Like him, you've been given gifts, and you've been dealt a hand in life that may look incomprehensible. But we can also come closer to understanding these gifts and how they play into God's plans. We've watched Joseph be so sure of God and his gifts, perhaps a little arrogant about it. And then we've watched him face rejection and betrayal from his older brothers, who were supposed to protect him and never leave him. We've watched him serve his guts out as a slave, only to be falsely accused when he was doing the right thing. We've watched him sit in a prison cell for over a decade as he continued to talk about God and trust Him. 
When we've wanted to be so mad at God, we have been stopped by this man who trusted him through suffering, even though God was making no sense. Joseph was full of a hope that disarmed the very worst kinds of loneliness and suffering. He was filled with a purpose that transcended his seemingly purposeless circumstances. And then at the end of a 20-year tunnel of suffering and isolation, a light broke through in a glaring form. Finally, he got to see what all the difficulty was for. To those of us who could not see the light of relief and purpose yet, and perhaps won't the sight of heaven, we've tasted something bigger than pain and circumstance. God was not far or flippant. He was strategically executing the most brilliant of plans to save lives. Joseph lifted our heads to remind us that wheelchairs, words unspoken, three young kids who are missing their mama's kisses, parents in their 70s nursing their 35-year-old daughter, and a divorce continuing to unfold while Sarah lies in a hospital bed, are not invisible to him. He knows, and he will take this hell on earth and someday show us how hell was building heaven. My favorite thing about the way God communicates to us is that through His Word, God often shows it to us gently, like in Al-Anon. It's like we're sitting in folding chairs with a circle of broken people who testify to a sovereign God who is loving, good, and perfect in His will, even if it looks like chaos. So we will bring the messy threads that make us human to Him and see if He will sort them out. So I need to say this. I think God could untangle your soul, your story, your gifts, your people, your place, and your passions, and begin to weave it into purposes that you haven't been brave enough to imagine. Continuing on, we are not here by accident, and the events in our lives are not accidents either. It's all leading to something. Take Joseph. He was never in the wrong place at the wrong time, though it must have felt wrong to him. Um, prison? God was leading him through a series of events that all served great purpose. Even though it was all leading to a specific time and place, it was also building a man. God could use. Sure, our stories lead us towards our purposes, but they also make us into people strong enough to fulfill our purposes. God was working for good and even for the saving of lives. God met Joseph in Egypt because he had the unique gifts to meet the need, compassion and character that comes through suffering, the right people in his path, the gift of turning up in all the right places even if they all felt wrong, and a passion to see it through. Speaking of suffering, I know that every one of you reading this has tasted some version of suffering. We live in a broken world, and it's just overflowing with it. We can do one of two things with suffering. We can absorb it and let it change us, or we can let it crush us. Suffering will change you, or it will crush you. I know people to whom it's done both. Honestly, on a given day, it does both to me at the same time. We're building the stories of our lives, the highest points and the lowest points. Something about the highest points reveals what it is we were made to do that brings God pleasure. But it is trickier to consider that God knew about every single darkness that you would face before you ever faced it. Every single one. He knew it. I don't say that lightly or without a lot of fear and trembling, because I know some of you are dealing with unthinkable hurt. God didn't let Joseph just be sold into slavery so he could get to Egypt. He had Joseph's brothers do it. He could have found another way. But God absolutely devastated Joseph. For 20 years, the only people who had really known him before he was a nameless slave wanted him dead. So Joseph was stuck in a life of slavery in prison, and outside of that life, there was no hope of an earthly family who loved him. A person in prison who has no one on the outside, not one other person on earth who cares if he is alive, what does that force someone to do? Often, that person cries out to God and seeks to know him. When you don't have anything or anyone else on earth, all of a sudden God starts looking really good. 
Something about us needs to long for heaven. When everything is right and everything works, be honest, we don't tend to long for heaven or for God. We just don't. We live differently when we are crushed. Arrogance is born when there is no crushing. We need to want Jesus. God knows that. There is not one part of you that he dismisses. There is not one tear that you will ever cry that is not felt deeply by God. But he is not afraid to let us suffer. We can't get away from it. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 2-4, through 4, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Before we get bitter and ask how this could happen, how God could ever say that unimaginable suffering is worth it, look what Paul made clear in the next verses. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verses 7 and 8. Paul quickly warns us not to question God's love because God chose the worst kind of suffering because of His love for us. But we still come back to the question, why does God let us suffer? Jesus is best known through suffering. Every time I want to be mad at God because of suffering, He shows me Jesus. As the Bible puts it in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings. And it is true. I have known Jesus most deeply in suffering. He seems to inhabit suffering, and He endured it too. He is not a God unfamiliar with suffering, and He is near to our broken hearts. We get stronger. With suffering comes a morbid but helpful perspective that life is moving fast and this earth is not our home. I used to live in fear that my life wasn't going to work out just right. The more I surrender to suffering and to joy and to whatever God has for me, the less I worry about that. Now my biggest fear is that I won't spend my life well for God. I can run farther and longer than I could before. I am not despairing. Faith is growing. We hurt for heaven. Hours ago, we sat at a funeral for a friend who committed suicide. Suffering often jars us out of comatose lives. As I listened to the pastor describe the life of our friend, I ached to be with him in heaven, but I also ached to live this short life with as much passion and love as humanly possible. Suffering reminds us this life is short and this earth is not our home. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-13, through Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. His glory will be revealed, and those who have suffered most will be the most overjoyed. Our lives could leave a mark. If we are here for just a breath, I'd like one little breath to feel more like a mighty gust of wind. That takes surrender, perseverance, and not wasting my minutes away on comparing or complaining. The apostles walked away from painful persecution, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering. Acts 5.41 It is an honor to suffer. It is a privilege. And we are not to waste it. God wrote suffering into our stories and wants to redeem it for His glory. And if we weren't shaking our fists at Him, we could possibly sit down and see that we are running from a life in flames toward a great purpose. A purpose that could never exist without the flames. He says, I want to redeem your suffering into beautiful things. I can make beautiful things out of ashes. 
Nobody else can do that. I can. I can turn dead and dry bones into living life. I can redeem death and make it alive. I can take the most awful, horrific, terrible circumstances and bring life into them. How will he do that? I'll tell you how he's done it in my life. God used something dark to break chains in me to set me free. I stood staring my worst fear in the face, and God has never felt closer. If our worst fears come true, God. And as we suffer and he comforts us, we comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. My freedom and the way God filled my soul lit in me a passion, which eventually turned into a calling. Everywhere I go, I see people stuck in bondage on something invisible, and I lose sleep, pound the table, and spend endless hours fighting for their freedom through writing and teaching. Out of my pain, I see others' pain. And because I have tasted freedom, I crave others' freedom. Out of our pain, we heal. Out of our bondage, we set free. And again, the messiest waste of our lives becomes the most fertile soil. I'm getting there, embracing suffering. But as I embrace it, it seems only to increase. It helps to read Genesis 50 where Joseph faced his brothers who had caused decades of suffering to him and said, What you intended to harm me, God meant it for good. Then he said, For the saving of many lives. Our suffering could possibly save lives. If God's story really does go on forever and ever and never ends, it's justifiable that God cares more about our eternity with him than this little pixel today. What men meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. Fires are lit in our lives and they can burn to shine light or cause destruction. We get to decide which purpose they will serve. Moving on to a section titled Be There, Jenny says, Let's start with what we can know. We know our mission is to know God and make Him known. We know at least a glimpse of the story of God through Scripture. We know we are to love without warrant every person God puts in our paths. And we know we are to love God more than all of it. You'll know that though we may not know God's specific detailed will for us, 99% of being in the will of God is being wholly willing to be in the will of God. God is quiet and completely wise in His timing of revealing His will. Most of you reading this have enough opportunity for ministry right under your noses that you never need to move or change a thing. In Austin, there is a bumper sticker floating around that says life is too short to live in Dallas. Austinites think it's funny. Here's my version for our purposes today. Life is too short to spend much time worrying about where on this planet you should be. As Jim Elliott, the great martyr missionary, said, Wherever you are, be all there. We live in a space in history where job changes, moves, and relocations are within reason and perfectly acceptable. So rather than being paralyzed with fear that you may move when you should have stayed, or you may stay when you should have moved, pray and commit your ways to the Lord, and then go do something. God asks us into his will like a loving dad in a swimming pool asking his little child to jump. Whether that child jumps really far or barely scoots his bottom into the pool, that dad will move to catch him. So don't be afraid. God's willing to move, and if we will just jump, he is going to catch us. Let him be God. Move on what you know and quit overanalyzing what you don't. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Joseph did this so beautifully. God had shown him he would do these awesome things with his life. And rather than worry about being stuck in prison or as a slave, he did great things wherever he was. It's not our place. It's what we do in our places. Joseph had the determination that is missing in our generation. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I think we are a bunch of wimps. In general, we try our best to avoid difficult work. But when Joseph was in slavery and in prison, he picked up the mop and said, Okay, I'm going to work with this. I'm going to make the best of this. That's powerful. With no explanation from God as to why his life was in ruin, he made a choice to be a kick-butt slave. He was awesome. He gave his life to it without any entitlement, without any complaining. He did his best so much that he was promoted to running his owner's home and leading the prison. For Joseph, his fulfillment was a determination and a choice that certainly took conscious initiation. He gave everything he had to serve well, even as a slave and a falsely accused inmate. So if we know no place, no job, no marriage, no child is going to fulfill us perfectly, we can make the choice to quit fighting for happiness in all of it and start to fight for God's glory in it. It takes a determination every day to trust Him while you're still in your place. After Christ gave the Great Commission and ascended to heaven, the apostles got after it and were persecuted as they went. The Apostle Paul wrote this from prison in Philippians chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Verses 12 through 14. What Paul was basically saying is this, I am preaching the gospel to the world from a prison cell. I'm doing my job what he put me on earth to do wherever I am. But I'm also representing Christ, even if I'm not preaching to somebody. Even when I'm not writing an epistle to you, somebody in this prison is watching me in chains. How I live day in and out in these chains is changing them. Why don't we see our jobs, our blogs, our neighborhoods, or even our time in hospitals or infertility clinics like this? Often we applaud exceptional ministry and miss the everyday ministry that nobody sees. What Paul and Joseph both assumed was that somehow, in their God-given places, God was most effectively able to preach the gospel. I want you to ask yourself that question about your place. Are you set in the place you are in because it is the most strategic place for you to preach the gospel? Let me tell you what happens when you start to think that way. Everything changes. You change the question from, are my neighborhood, my workplace, my school, and my life stage making me happy? To, are my neighborhood my workplace, my school, and my life stage, the most strategic places for my kids, my life, my story, my personality, and everything I need to preach the gospel. There are no accidents or coincidences. There is a God setting us in our times and our places with our people. And if that is true, He has a plan for it all. Maybe you are exactly in the will of God, living a life of purpose, but you can't see it because you're afraid. Afraid your place doesn't matter. Afraid you won't succeed. Afraid God doesn't see you. Afraid that what you're doing isn't ministry. Afraid of what people will think if you live your life for Christ in your place. Your gifts and stories will be used in many different places over the course of your life. We have freedom to dream about our places, and there is great purpose in using our gifts in corporations, nonprofits, state school systems, churches, and neighborhoods. I think some of you could be happy in your place if you thought to some degree 
God was proud of you right in the middle of your non-African missionary, mundane, punching numbers job. We all have threads he wants to spin into stories that last forever, and our places are part of that. Do you see the need around you? We often miss this as the main point of the story of Joseph, but it is key. What was God doing through Joseph's decades of suffering? Was he refining Joseph? Yes. Was he restoring Joseph to his family? Yes. But ultimately, God intended Joseph's life to save many lives, and by the end of Joseph's lives, he told his brothers it was all worth it. What Joseph knew, and what you hear in his words over and over again, is a trust in God. This relentless, unconditional trust didn't make sense. What you did to me, I completely believe with all of my heart that God did it. This was not about brothers, favoritism of your father. This was about God. This was about something bigger happening on earth. Every Christian knows that Christ gives us a foundational calling, to live as Christ. Christ met needs, and all other passions serve only to lead us to the unique needs we can meet. Joseph wasn't an especially spectacular human being. He just gave his life to the problems of his generation. We could do that too. And together, as one body with many parts, we could see God move. The word passion originates in Latin, meaning to suffer. The word was created by religious scholars in the 11th century to describe a willing suffering of Christ. Passions have become nearly synonymous with pleasures and what excites us in modern culture. But consider that suffering is originally defined as a moment of the deepest willing suffering of Christ for our good. It lifts the word from human desires to a monumental love willing to suffer. When we find ourselves willing to choose suffering for a cause, that cause may hold our life's mission. God often leads us to passions through suffering, experienced or perceived. As you consider your scars on this journey, hopefully passions begin to rise out of your darkest moments. You long to give the world what you failed to receive. Passions are also born out of observing the sufferings of others. Joseph suffered great pain in his life, but his suffering gave him a sincere passion for reconciliation and human care. We don't naturally have passion for others. Naturally, we are dang selfish. But when we were bought by Christ, we exchanged our hearts full of self-seeking passions for God's heart, and now we share His passions. God said through His prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Our hearts are new, and now what was cold is warm and full of compassion, led and moved by His Spirit. We were built for this. What begins as a burden and obligation becomes a thing that fills our restless souls. It's beautiful that your heart doesn't beat fast about the same things my heart beats over. It's beautiful that your gifts are not the same as your mom's, and your place is not the same as your best friend's. When we start to lay out our threads, it is unbelievable, breathtaking really, to see how what felt average about ourselves weeks ago starts to take on intricate beauty. Our untangling threads reveal God's sovereignty and attention to detail. Beautiful is the body of Christ stretched and poured out into every crevice of this world, every city, every neighborhood, every office, every home. It's the unselfish passions of people displaying the love of their God in a million unique ways. I've heard it put this way, the place God calls you is the place where your deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger meet. Beautiful are all your unique threads that cause you to lie in bed awake or speak with exclamation points.
Your view of your life may be small, but nothing about your life is small. Every moment is granted for purpose we can't see. Every breath is issued for eternal things left undone. We possess God and are filled with Him for the very same purposes that Peter, John, Paul, Mary, and Luke in the early church were filled with Him. We are filled with God to pour Him into the darkness, pour Him into the broken souls of those who are starving for something. There are no average small dreams and no average people. There are no meaningless moments as we go to the gym or cook macaroni or handle shipping orders gone wrong or nurse our babies. If we were sitting across from each other and you pleaded with me, begged me to believe you were average, your life was boring, there was nothing significant to anything you were doing, you could not convince me. You could not. There are moments of cuddling and skipping school and public kisses on the lips that embarrass our children who need full souls to be light to their world. There are moments with jumpsuits and prison cells, metaphorical or real, that exist for others' freedom. There are moments with new Bibles outside Olive Garden. There are moments with tangled threads over dinners where simple visions are affirmed and neighborhood boot camps are born. There are moments in speech therapy offices when you hug a mother who is fighting back tears because she wonders if her autistic toddler will get to go to mainstream kindergarten. There are moments of sweeping up crumbs from breakfast that no one sees and couldn't possibly matter except that as order is brought from chaos, your family flourishes a little more that day. There are moments in offices when you swallow all pride as co-workers gossip and misrepresent you to others, and God draws near in that very moment you have never felt so alone. There are moments in hospital waiting rooms when the world turns upside down and you shake your fists and fall down. In the darkest moments, God was building the brightest ones. Do you feel restless? There is more a story too weighty and beautiful to bear, a story stretched out beyond 10 million years from today. So don't waste your lives any longer staring at ceilings, wondering if there is more. There is more. Take the threads of your life and go live like it. Suffering. Comforted to comfort others. Wherever you are, be all there. For God's glory and the good of others, the saving of many lives. Glory in the mundane, the dailiness of life. Threads, stories, weave together, more. There is more. So much more. Phew, I know that was a lot and a very long intro, but I feel it is 100% crucial for us to take some time identifying how Joseph's story, and really any of the stories found in the pages of Scripture, can and often do intersect with our own lives, often in multiple ways, layer upon layer. Okay, friends, let's pick up where we left off in Joseph's story. His father Jacob is packing up all of his stuff to start the 450-mile journey to Egypt. Joseph and his father are about to be reunited. So touching, for sure. But first, we have God showing up to reassure Jacob in his travels. Genesis chapter 46 from the New Living Translation begins. Jacob's Journey to Egypt So Jacob set out for Egypt with all his possessions, and when he came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. During the night, God spoke to him in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he called. Here I am, Jacob replied. I am God, the God of your father, the voice said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make your family into a great nation. I will go with you down to Egypt, and I will bring you back again. You will die in Egypt, but Joseph will be with you to close your eyes. So Jacob left Beersheba and took his sons with him to Egypt. They carried him and their little ones and their wives in the wagons Pharaoh had provided for them. They also took all their livestock and all the personal belongings they had acquired in the land of Canaan. So Jacob and his entire family went to Egypt, sons and grandsons, 
daughters and granddaughters, all his descendants. These are the names of the descendants of Israel, the sons of Jacob, who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's oldest son. The sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohed, Jakar, Zohar, and Shaul. Shaul's mother was a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merai. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, though Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Pua, Jasab, and Simron. The sons of Zebulon were Sered, Elon, and Jahil. These were the sons of Leah and Jacob who were born in Padam, Aram, in addition to their daughter Dinah. The number of Jacob's descendants, male and female, through Leah was thirty-three. The sons of Gad were Zephon, Haggai, Shunai, Ezbon, Irai, Aradai, and Erai. The sons of Asher were Emna, Isva, Isvi, and Beriah. Their sister was Sarah. Berai's sons were Habir and Mekil. These were the sons of Zilpah, the servant given to Leah by her father Laban. The number of Jacob's descendants through Zilpah was sixteen. The sons of Jacob's wife Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph's sons born in the land of Egypt were Manasseh and Ephraim. Their mother was Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. Benjamin's sons were Bela, Becker, Ajbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mippon, Huppam, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel and Jacob. The number of Jacob's descendants through Rachel was fourteen. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Gunai, Jezer, and Siliam. These were the sons of Bilah, the servant given to Rachel by her father Laban. The number of Jacob's descendants through Bilah was seven. The total number of Jacob's direct descendants who went with him to Egypt, not counting his sons' wives, was sixty-six. In addition, Joseph had two sons who were born in Egypt. So altogether, there were seventy members of Jacob's family in the land of Egypt. Jacob's family arrives at Goshen. As they neared their destination, Jacob sent Judah ahead to meet Joseph and get directions to the region of Goshen. And when they finally arrived there, Joseph prepared his chariot and traveled to Goshen to meet his father, Jacob. When Joseph arrived, he embraced his father and they wept, holding him for a long time. Finally, Jacob said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen your face again and know you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his brother's entire family, I will go to Pharaoh and tell him, My brothers and my father's entire family have come to me from the land of Canaan. These men are shepherds, and they raise livestock. They have brought with them their flocks and herds and everything they own. Then he said, When Pharaoh calls for you and asks you about your occupation, you must tell him, We, your servants, have raised livestock all our lives, as our ancestors have always done. When you tell him this, he will let you live here in the region of Goshen, for the Egyptians despise shepherds. Okay, friends. In an effort to keep our study time together moving along, listen to this perspective about what we are seeing happening here in chapter 46 from Beth Moore's Patriarch Study in a section titled, With All That Was His. Beth begins. As a compulsive reader, few things aggravate me more than a good book with a bad ending. God does all things well. He's seen fit to begin the last leg of our journey in Genesis with the last leg of Jacob's life. Rest assured, we have a good ending coming. I didn't say perfect. Remember. Scripture is not fiction, and real people on this planet don't completely fix. After traveling in Genesis through the twists, turns, and spin cycles of four generations, we have the privilege of seeing the story all come together. Let's start with this. Final tally of Joseph's family who settled in Egypt was 70. Jacob may have not moved since Joseph's disappearance. The last recorded locale for the patriarch was Hebron, Genesis 37, 14. 
I know a mom who's afraid to move away from her home of 20 years in case a young man who lived there for a while tries to find his way back. Perhaps Jacob had similar fears. The news that his beloved Joseph was alive, well, and powerful surely stunned him beyond belief. He wasn't the only head swimming. Imagine the inner conflict of the sons while they heralded good news, sure to raise questions without pretty answers. After all, wouldn't the brothers have to explain how Joseph ended up in Egypt rather than the belly of a wild beast? So Israel set out with all that was his. We are told Jacob, Israel, offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac when he reached Beersheba. You probably recorded this among the threads of connectedness. Why Beersheba? Because God appeared at Beersheba to Isaac and identified himself as the God of his father, connecting the original blessing to Abraham with the family line. Isaac built an altar there, and many years later Jacob offered sacrifices, presumably on that very altar. The old man was surely awash with sentiment over God's faithfulness toward his family line. Note how scripture identifies the patriarch in Genesis chapter 46 verse 2. It reads, And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Perhaps you've wondered why scripture refers to the third generation patriarch sometimes as Israel and other times as Jacob, and often within phrases of one another. God alone knows for certain, but one commentary explains that the name Jacob is used most often when the fretful, apprehensive, suffering patriarch is in view. Certainly the old man had cause for apprehension, even if it was wrapped in gratitude. With full knowledge of the promised land perimeters, Jacob was uprooting his entire family and moving to Egypt. If you recall, in Genesis chapter 26, verse 2, Jacob's father Isaac was told by God to not go to Egypt. God came to Jacob, purposely identified himself as the God of his father Isaac, then told him not to be afraid to go to Egypt. Yet decades earlier, as noted in Genesis 26-2, God forbade Isaac to go to his father. Same God, same line, different plan. God reserves the sovereign right to direct one of his children on a path he may have forbidden to another. God's overarching laws and principles do not change, but his directions within them can vary drastically. That's one reason we must be careful not to force our personal convictions in gray areas on another believer. God may require something of you he does not require of me, and vice versa. God not only told Jacob to proceed fearlessly to Egypt, but also told him he'd go with him. Listen to his words to Jacob. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Take notice of God's promise to Jacob. I will surely bring you back again, as in verse 4. A rich Old Testament feature appears in this promise that I don't want you to miss. Would Jacob actually return to the land of promise alive? No. His body would be buried there, but he'd never lay eyes on it again. The prophecy of Genesis chapter 15 was already set in motion, and the children of Israel would remain in Egypt 400 years. God had not forgotten the prophecy, and he certainly hadn't lied about its fulfillment. God's promise to bring back the patriarch was to Jacob's family line, and not just his dry bones. Notice the three references to you or your in Genesis 46, 4. In I will go down to Egypt with you, the word you applies to Jacob and his family. In I will surely bring you back again, you applies to his descendants or what would ultimately become the nation. Finally, in saying Joseph's own hands will close your eyes, the word your refers to Jacob himself. Ancient Old Testament thinkers may not have had a problem with the oscillating meanings of you, but I believe New Testament thinkers do. I'm not sure we've been taught to open our minds to this possibility when we are convinced God has made a promise. Promises fulfilled from a distance can mean a number of things. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40 refers to the promises God is waiting to fulfill until we're all together. What an incredibly exciting thought. 
Today's text suggests something else distance can mean. God can speak a promise to his faithful child that will actually be fulfilled in the life of his or her descendant. Modern drive through thinkers like you and me frame events in an immediate terms that when we decide, we either misunderstood God or he misled us if his promises are not fulfilled in our personal lives. An ancient Hebrew thinker would have considered the possibility of a promise fulfilled in his descendant a great honor because such fulfillment signaled God's continued blessing over the extended line. Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 tells us God shows his love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. The last thing I want to do is discourage you from believing God for the fulfillment of countless promises before your earthly eyes. Let's be open to the possibility, however, that if the years slip away and we find ourselves on our deathbed without seeing a promise fulfilled, it may have been intended for our physical or spiritual descendants. God's promises to us are bigger than us and reach far beyond us. Their ultimate purpose is glory, His. He is always faithful, and He will never make a promise He won't keep. His promises to you could be for you personally, your family, or your line. If precious promises aren't fulfilled in the fruitful years of our lifetimes, let's believe God and welcome His promises from a distance. What kind of faith could be more pleasing to Him? Now let's look at the end of our present chapter for the climatic reunion of Jacob and the long-lost Joseph in Genesis chapter 46, verses 28-30. through 30. Once Joseph knew Jacob was near, he went straightway on his chariot to see him. Let's not hurry past this scene. Surely moments like these are why God gave us imaginations. Picture it. Jacob had not seen his son in over twenty years. To him, Joseph was gone, leaving behind only a bloodied robe. One wonders how long he kept it in his possession. He had been told by the others that Joseph is alive, well, and in the power seat. But could anything have prepared the old man for the sight of Rachel's firstborn son, arriving in a cloud of dust on a chariot from the Pharaoh's fleet? Surely Jacob's son said something like, That's him, father. That's Joseph in the distance. Do you see the dust? Can you hear the horses? I can picture Jacob squinting against the desert sun, welcoming this beloved promise from a distance. Then there he was, right before his father's aging eyes, Joseph, his Joseph. So different from the Hebrew boy of seventeen he'd lost. So different from his bearded brothers. Was it truly him, this Egyptianized man, clean-shaven, maybe bare-chested and bedecked in brass and jewels? No beast inflicted scars in sight. Jacob's thoughts twirled, and all the sentiments that stampeded through his heart and mind, do you think he was able to silently wonder, what have you done to your hair, or why didn't I bring that coat? As we're told that Joseph threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time, we can imagine Jacob in shock. We have no record of immediate reciprocation. Weeping for a long time doesn't come quickly from a sudden explosion of emotion. Those kinds of tears spring quickly and dry quickly. No, weeping for a long time comes from a storehouse in the soul, saving up, stuffing back, long-term investments. Though Joseph had wept for his brothers, nothing could have compared to the sight of his daddy. Beautiful sight, difficult sight. The lines in the old man's leathery face were etched deeply, and not just by years, but by the scalpel of grief. Joseph's tears forged a Nile down the desert dry lines of the old patriarch's neck. These words finally came from the wrestler God renamed Israel. In verse 30, he said, Now I am ready to die since I have seen your face and know you are still alive. Jacob would not die soon. As God would have it, he had lived 17 more years in Joseph's company, exactly the same number he'd shared with him before. Bookends of 17 years with painful, precious volumes of a strange life wedged between them, time that could not be made up, not enough time to lament it. 
The father-son saga began with the telling words in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob, Joseph, and in the end, it will be the same. Continuing on in the first five Genesis study devotional titled, Going New Places with God, about Genesis chapter 46, verses 2 and 3, which reads, And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Here I am, he replied. I am God and the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. Moving to a new place can sometimes be nerve-wracking. Imagine being 130 years old and God asking you to move your entire family, business, and belongings to an unfamiliar country. No wonder Jacob was afraid. I would be too, unless I knew for sure it was part of God's plan. Following God's instructions required Jacob to step away from what was familiar and move toward what seemed foreign. He had to embrace the unknown future while letting go of what felt comfortable and certain. Like Jacob, saying yes to God's call isn't always easy. It can require more than we're willing to give and take us places we never expected to go. That's when doubt and uncertainty step in and give fear permission to take up residency in our hearts. God had many blessings waiting for Jacob in Egypt. Jacob would be reunited with his beloved son Joseph. His entire family would be provided for. The family business would continue to grow. They would escape the harsh realities of the famine. And not only were there immediate blessings, but God promised to make Jacob's family a great nation in the future. In order to receive the blessings, Jacob had to step out in faith and be willing to face the challenges. That's where many of us give up and give in. We give up on God's promises as we give in to fear. God fulfilled all the promises he made to Jacob. His entire family arrived safely and settled in some of the best land of Egypt. Jacob was reunited with his son Joseph, and out of their descendants came God's chosen nation of Israel. Although Jacob died in Egypt, his descendants prospered and multiplied in vast numbers before returning to the promised land. Did you know that there are hundreds of promises in the Bible? Although we'll never know precisely when, how, or where a promise will be fulfilled in our lives, we can be certain God is faithful to fulfill them. There it is again, friends, that reminder that God is our promise keeper. I just love that about God, don't you? Beautiful, just beautiful. Okay, let's move into our reading of Genesis chapter 47. God blesses Pharaoh. Then Joseph went to see Pharaoh and told him, My father and my brothers have arrived from the land of Canaan. They have come with all their flocks and herds and possessions, and they are now in the region of Goshen. Joseph took five of his brothers with him and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? They replied, We, your servants, are shepherds, just like our ancestors. We have come to live here in Egypt for a while, for there is no pasture for our flocks in Canaan. The famine is very severe there. So please, we request permission to live in the region of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Now that your father and brothers have joined you here, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them to live. Give them the best land of Egypt. Let them live in the region of Goshen, and if any of them have special skills, put them in charge of my livestock too. Then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. How old are you? Pharaoh asked him. Jacob replied, I have traveled this earth for a hundred and thirty hard years, but my life has been short compared to the lives of my ancestors. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh again before leaving his court. So Joseph assigned the best land of Egypt, the region of Ramses, to his father and his brothers, and they settled there, just as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided food for his father and his brothers the amounts appropriate to the numbers of their dependents, including the smallest children. Joseph's Leadership in the Famine Meanwhile, the famine became so severe that all of the food was used up, and people were starving throughout the land of Egypt and Canaan. 
By selling grain to the people, Joseph eventually collected all the money in Egypt and Canaan, and he put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. When the people of Egypt and Canaan ran out of money, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. Our money is gone, they cried, but please give us food or we will die before your very eyes. Joseph replied, since your money is gone, bring me your livestock. I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph in exchange for food, in exchange for their horses, flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and donkeys. Joseph provided them with food for another year. But that year ended, and the next year they came again and said, We cannot hide the truth from you, my lord. Our money is gone, and all our livestock and cattle are yours. We have nothing left to give but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your very eyes? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We offer our land and ourselves as slaves for Pharaoh. Just give us grain so we may live and not die, and so the land does not become empty and desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold him their fields because the famine was so severe, and soon all the land belonged to Pharaoh. As for the people, he made them all slaves, from one end of Egypt to the next. The only land he did not buy was the land belonging to the priests. They received an allotment of food directly from Pharaoh, so they didn't need to sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Look, today I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. I will provide you with seeds so you can plant the fields. Then when you harvest it, one-fifth of your crop will belong to Pharaoh. You may keep the remaining four-fifths as seeds for your fields and as food for you, your households, and your little ones. You have saved our lives, they exclaimed. May it please you, my lord, to let us be Pharaoh's servants. Joseph then issued a decree still in effect in the land of Egypt that Pharaoh should receive one-fifth of all the crops grown on his land. Only the land belonging to the priests was not given to Pharaoh. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property, and they were fruitful, and their population grew rapidly. Jacob lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt, so he lived 147 years in all. As the time of his death drew near, Jacob called for his son Joseph and said to him, Please do me this favor. Put your hand under my thigh and swear that you will treat me with unfailing love by honoring this last request. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I die, please take my body out of Egypt and bury me with my ancestors. So Joseph promised, I will do as you ask. Swear that you will do it, Jacob insisted. So Joseph gave his oath, and Jacob bowed humbly at the head of his bed. Genesis chapter 48 Jacob blesses Manasseh and Ephraim One day, not long after this, word came to Joseph, Your father is failing rapidly. So Joseph went to visit his father and took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Joseph arrived, Jacob was told, Your son Joseph has come to see you. So Jacob gathered his strength and sat up in his bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply your descendants. I will make you a multitude of nations and I will give this land of Canaan to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Now I am claiming as my own sons these two boys of yours, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you here in the land of Egypt before I arrived. They will be my sons just as Reuben and Simeon are. But any children born to you in the future will be your own, and they will inherit land within the territories of their brothers Ephraim and Manasseh. Long ago, as I was returning from Padan Aram, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. We were still on the way some distance from Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So with great sorrow I buried her there beside the road. Then Jacob looked over at the two boys. Are these your sons? he asked. Yes, Joseph told him. These are the sons God has given me here in Egypt. Jacob said, Bring them closer to me so I can bless them. Jacob was half blind because of his age and could hardly see. So Joseph brought the boys close to him, and Jacob kissed and embraced them. Then Jacob said to Joseph, I never thought I would see your face again, but now God has let me see your children, too. 
Joseph moved the boys who were at their grandfather's knees, and he bowed with his face to the ground. Then he positioned the boys in front of Jacob. With his right hand, he directed Ephraim toward Jacob's left hand, and with his left hand, he put Manasseh at Jacob's right hand. But Jacob crossed his arms as he reached out to lay his hands on the boys' heads. He put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, though he was a younger boy, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, though he was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my grandfather Abraham and my father Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this very day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they preserve my name in the names of Abraham and Isaac, and may their descendants multiply greatly throughout the earth. But Joseph was upset when he saw that his father placed his right hand on Ephraim's head. So Joseph lifted it to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. No, my father, he said, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. I know, my son, I know, he replied. Manasseh will also become a great people, but his younger brother will become even greater, and his descendants will become a multitude of nations. So Jacob blessed the boys that day with this blessing. The people of Israel will use your names when they give a blessing. They will say, May God make you as prosperous as Ephraim and Manasseh. In this way, Jacob put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Then Jacob said to Joseph, Look, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will take you back to Canaan, the land of your ancestors. And beyond what I have given your brothers, I am giving you an extra portion of the land that I took from the Amorites with my sword and bow. Oh, friends, before we go much further in our studies of chapters 47 and 48, I want to camp on this thought that came to my own mind about the tenderness of the moment when Jacob sees his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 8 says, Then Jacob looked over at the boys. Are these your sons? he asked. I can't even imagine the intense emotion that these words carried. Not only was Jacob restored to his son, Joseph, after years of thinking he was dead, but also this, grandsons. Listen into She Reads Truth's Genesis study as Aaron Davis further develops this moment for us in a devotional titled, Jacob Comes to Egypt. Sometimes the language of scripture is so tender, I'm tempted to look away. We find such a moment in Genesis 48. When Jacob sent his favorite son on a simple errand to check the family pasture, that son, Joseph, was barely out of boyhood. Scripture tells us that he was just 17 years old. But Joseph never came home. Jacob believed the story his older sons told him that his favorite boy was dead. He must have mentally buried him and buried all hopes for Joseph's future. In the unbelievable providence of God, Jacob was reunited with his boy. But Joseph wasn't a teenager anymore. The son Israel lost now had sons of his own, and Israel's hopes for his boy were suddenly resurrected. You can almost hear the wonder and surprise in his voice as he looked at his grandsons for the first time and asked, Whose are these? Israel wasted no time on icebreakers. Seeing your children taken and returned has a way of cutting through the trivial. Bring them to me and I will bless them, he said. Scripture describes Jacob as a tired old man with eyes that didn't work like they used to, but he had seen enough in his life to know to hold his blessings close. Knowing this, these words in particular from this interaction put a lump in my throat. Verses 12, 15, and 16. Then Joseph took them from his father's knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Then Jacob blessed Joseph and said, The angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. The image of Ephraim and Manasseh sitting on their grandfather's knees pulls every string in my heart. There's such tenderness in this moment, such precious paternal prayer. The words of blessing Jacob spoke over his grandsons weren't grandiose. Though Jacob wrestled with God to secure his own blessing, for the next generation he sweetly whispered, Bless these boys. It was a prayer God certainly answered, a prayer God is answering still. What a beautiful moment to witness in Scripture, right, my friends? Grandsons sitting on their grandfather's knee, the beauty of second chances at life. 
I so love that about God. Now let's consider these thoughts about chapter 48 in a section titled Crossing His Arms in the Patriarch Study. Beth shares. Today's study unfolds some time later when Joseph is summoned to the sickbed of his father, Jacob. It seems our patriarch has outlived expectations. Obviously, Joseph resided at his official post near the palace rather than with his family. Words of his father's illness must have been serious enough for him to gather his sons to see their grandfather before he died. Israel rallied his strength and sat up in bed when told of Joseph's coming. I believe no face was dearer to Jacob than Joseph's. He was a face Jacob thought he'd never see again. Jacob still had work to do, though, before resting with his fathers. Blessings to give. Jacob's final tasks were as vital as anything he'd accomplished in his life. The Hebrew blessing was far more than wishful words and lofty benedictions. A blessing was God-spurred revelation with the absolute expectation of fulfillment. In preparation for the initial blessings, Jacob recounted the story of his encounter with God in Luz or Bethel. Notice the clarity with which Jacob recited the words El Shaddai had spoken to him so many years before. While you and I may not hear the audible voice of God, somewhere along the way we've probably felt like he said something so clear and vital to us that we'll take it to our deathbeds. The words of God Almighty at Bethel were critical to Jacob because it confirmed his connectedness to the divine covenant. Imagine how relieved Jacob, a man on the run at the time, was to know that the sins against his brother and father were not strong enough to shatter the bonds of covenant. God's arm cannot be broken. When God hangs on, nothing, absolutely nothing can break his grip. Jacob's announcement that Ephraim and Manasseh would be reckoned as his sons came in perfect context with the reminder of God's promise of covenant blessing. We can hardly fathom what Jacob was doing by claiming Joseph's sons as his own, but his actions carried great significance in ancient custom. By naming Ephraim and Manasseh as sons rather than grandsons, they were exalted as co-inheritors with their uncles. Jacob reached to the fullest length to guarantee the utmost benefits of blessing to Joseph's sons. Jacob had 51 other grandsons with him in Goshen, yet none joined Ephraim and Manasseh as sons of Israel. By adopting Joseph's sons as his own, Jacob gave Joseph two tribal allotments rather than one. He did compare Ephraim and Manasseh to his two sons, Reuben and Simeon. Nothing is accidental by this comparison. The first two sons of Leah are singled out because they are being bypassed to give the double portion to Joseph. Thus Joseph, the favored son of the beloved Rachel, received the double portion of the firstborn. Jacob not only blessed the two grandsons as sons, but also blessed the younger as the greater. Take a look at the text as a wonderful clue of what was to come. In what order were the sons of Joseph named in Genesis 48, verse 1? And in that verse it was Manasseh and Ephraim. But the order that Jacob spoke of their names in verse 5 was Ephraim and Manasseh. But we also know that Manasseh is the firstborn. So let's refresh our memory concerning the names' meanings in Genesis chapter 41, verses 51 and 52. Ephraim didn't receive the greater exaltation over the meaning of his name, but the symbolism as the priority given him could teach us a few things. Manasseh's name represented forgetting one's troubles. Ephraim's, on the other hand, represented fruitfulness in the land and in the midst of one's troubles. Beloved, in God's economy, fruitfulness trumps forgetfulness every time, no matter how differently we feel at times. Becoming fruitful in our troubles has far greater ramifications of blessing than forgetting our troubles. We're purposely echoing some of the concept we discussed at the birth of Joseph's sons because they intentionally resurface in today's scene. Jacob's enduring line would not be marked by the troubles they'd forgotten. It would be marked by the faithfulness of a God who remembered his covenant and made them fruitful. Fruitfulness trumps forgetfulness just as surely in your life and mine. And then this from First Five's Genesis study titled, Jacob Passes Down the Covenant Blessing. 
In Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16, they read, Then Jacob blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. Throughout our Genesis journey, we have met each of Jacob's twelve sons and spent much time with one particular son, his beloved Joseph. These twelve sons became the twelve patriarchs of the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. During the last hours of Jacob's life, he called Joseph and his two sons to his bedside to speak his last words of blessing. In that moment, he adopted Joseph's two sons as his own. This was significant because it meant that Manasseh and Ephraim would share in Jacob's inheritance equally with Jacob's own sons. When the time came for the blessing, Joseph positioned the oldest, Manasseh, on Jacob's right, knowing Hebrew tradition is to bless the older son by placing the right hand upon his head. But Jacob intentionally crossed his hands and placed his right hand on Ephraim instead of Manasseh, giving him the greater blessing. This was not a new tactic for God. He used this reverse pattern in three previous generations, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, and Joseph over Reuben. Jacob's blessings established Ephraim and Manasseh as the next beneficiaries of the Abrahamic covenant. Jacob's name and the promises and blessings wrapped in that name would live on through them. He prophesied that they would grow into a multitude of nations, and they did. They grew to be two of the most populous tribes in Israel, and Ephraim became the leading tribe in the northern kingdom. Jacob's blessing gives us a glimpse into God's heart. He chose Joseph's younger son to receive the greater blessing. God often chooses the weak, the least, and the smallest to do his greatest work. God typically does not elevate and esteem those the world does. He sees beyond what our eyes can see and looks into the heart. This encourages me. I know I don't have to be the strongest, wisest, or best for God to use me. I simply need to have a heart sold out to Him, willing to be used by Him. So although Jacob was younger, he received the blessing of the older son, and he similarly blesses Joseph's younger son, Ephraim, over the older son, Manasseh. He says about Manasseh in verse 19, His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27-29, through 29, we read, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We have seen this type of reversal time and time again in Genesis. From Cain in Genesis 4 to Esau in Genesis 25, and even Reuben in Genesis 49. This gives us great hope today. God loves to use people whom the world tends to overlook. So amazing to consider. And as a way to further develop this thought about how God uses our weaknesses and also our stories, listen into this from Proverbs 31 Ministries and Sharon Janes in a devotional titled, A Good Purpose for That Bad Story. She begins, I've had some things happen in my life that I would just as soon forget. I bet you have too. But as soon as I start to rip out the pages and shred the memories, God says to my soul, hold up, I've got a good purpose for that bad story. Joseph learned that lesson too. We find his story in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, falsely accused of sexual assault, and left in a prison to die. Then God miraculously rescued him from prison and made him second in command to the Egyptian pharaoh. By his 37th birthday, Joseph had two sons, one he named Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household, Genesis 41:51. The second son he named Ephraim, which means it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Genesis 41, 52. 
Many years after his sons were born, Joseph learned that his father Jacob, later named Israel, was ill. So he took his sons Manasseh and Ephraim and traveled for one last visit to see his father. When they arrived, Jacob said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Joseph brought his sons to his father's bedside. He placed Ephraim on the right toward Jacob's left hand and Manasseh, his firstborn, on the left toward Jacob's right hand. But instead of giving the blessing to Joseph's firstborn, Jacob reached out his hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. Then he crossed his arms and put his left hand on Manasseh's head. Joseph tried to stop his father from giving the blessing to the secondborn rather than the firstborn, but his father refused. In verse 19, he said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a great people. Nevertheless, the younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. What a beautiful picture. Yes, Joseph had a life of trouble and suffering at the hands of those who abused, neglected, and betrayed him. But God didn't want him to merely forget his suffering, as the name Manasseh implied. He wanted him to be fruitful in his suffering, as the name Ephraim implied. It's the same with you and me. God does not want us to simply forget the pain of the past. He wants us to be fruitful in the land of our suffering, to use it for good. Years after I experienced secondary infertility and the loss of a child, I read Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 1. The bride said to the groom, I am a rose of Sharon. Feeling prompted to look up my name, Sharon, in my Bible dictionary, I learned it was a fertile valley in the Holy Land. God didn't want me to just forget my personal pain of infertility, but to be fertile in other ways, fruitful in the land of my suffering, by helping others experiencing loss. God doesn't comfort us just to make us comfortable. He comforts to make us comfort-able, able to comfort those with the comfort we have received, 2 Corinthians 1, 4. So don't rip out those painful stories and try to forget them. Allow God to heal them and then use them. Someone needs to hear your story. Oh my, did you hear that, friends? Someone needs to hear your story. Full stop. How about we just move on to a time of prayer right here with this thought in mind. Heavenly Father, thank you that you see us not as the world sees us. You see us as you created us, in your image, with great value and purpose. Help us to walk in the truth of who we are in you. Even though we might not be the smartest or the most gifted, you choose us to do great things through you and for you. We also thank you that, as we have seen in Joseph's story, nothing is ever wasted in our life experiences. The world may say, just forget about it when it comes to our past struggles. But you say, just use it to be fruitful. Show us ways we can use what we have gone through to help other people. Lord, we pray that as you did with Joseph, you will make us fruitful in the land of our suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, friends. As a bit of a teaser for our next episode, listen to this perspective from the spoken gospel as we are nearing the end of our time in this book of Genesis. The end of Genesis gets us ready for the beginning of Exodus. God told Abraham back in chapter 15 that his descendants would be strangers in a foreign land for 400 years. Now that time is coming. It's no wonder then that when God appeared to Jacob on his way to Egypt, he told him not to be afraid to go. And the reason he didn't need to be afraid was that God would bring them back out of Egypt. This is a promise repeated constantly throughout these last chapters of Genesis. Jacob makes Joseph promise to bury him back in Canaan as a testament to the fact that his descendants won't stay in Egypt. Before dying, however, Jacob extends a long series of blessings to his twelve sons. This is a high point of all the blessings and curses pronounced through the fall, Cain, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now God's promise is passing from one individual, Jacob, to a nation, Israel. But above all the blessings given, history recounted, and promises made in these closing chapters, one truth stands out above all the rest. After all his brothers did, 
Joseph is not mad. He forgives them because he knows something true about how God works. Here is what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Chapter 50, verse 20. You intended harm. God intended good. This is a theme all throughout Genesis. God takes the sinfulness, deceit, trickery, lust, depravity, and selfishness of humans and makes good out of them. From Adam and Eve's fall to Jacob tricking Isaac to Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law, God has been bringing good out of evil the whole way. And he does it to accomplish a purpose, the saving of many lives. How can we not see the gospel in this? People sought to harm Jesus by imprisoning him, forcing him through an illegitimate trial, whipping him though he was innocent, and murdering him on a cross. They intended harm. God intended good. Through harming Jesus in this way, God has accomplished his ultimate purpose, the saving of many lives. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus is the promised seed of Adam and Eve that crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who blesses all nations. Jesus is the one who will bring us out of this current Egypt we are in and take us to the promised land of his presence forever. Goodness, more on all that to come in the next episode of OOBT, I promise. Until then, though, this is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time.